0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card.
2: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Um, I demanded after Friday's Zeitgeist, where she was the focus of attention in the markets Friday afternoon. Lori Calvicina joins us now, head of U.S. Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. What's so extraordinary about the Calvacina view, uh, Laurie? What's the distinction that got Global Wall Street's attention this weekend?
4: Uh, You tell me, Tom. I mean, I try to keep a cool head in in topsy turvy markets, whether it's to the upside or to the downside. Um, But look, I will tell you, I think we were at a crossroads back in mid May. We wrote a piece titled that saying that if the market kind of broke below the 3,800, 3,850 type level, exited growth scare territory, that we'd be pricing in a full recession. We bounced back, and we're right now right back at that crossroads. Um, And I think it's very interesting. The market did not break 3,900 on Friday, um, that May 19th low actually ended up holding. I also thought it was interesting, frankly, um, that the small cap space, while it did get hit as hard as the S&P 500, it didn't get hit materially worse on Friday. That's important because we had seen that positioning had already been washed out in the futures market there. The peak in small cap came last March versus large. Um, right. and you know, I, I think we can start to sort of look for areas of the market now that have been de-risked, even though there may be more right. risk in the aggregate.
3: We have focused and we did this to great credit to our team Thursday and Friday on the five-year-out, five-year view of inflation from the University of Michigan survey. Lori, you highlight that if we have a reset to higher inflation expectations, is that good for equities or less good?
4: I think that it keeps the value trade going forward. And I think that ends up being a destabilizing force for the equity market, simply because we do need that growth side to really stabilize. That's really where more of the market cap is in the S&P 500 these days. But we actually just took a look at how different sectors in the market have traded in regards to that University of Michigan five-year inflation expectation expectation number people used to make fun of me for using it it actually you know turned out it was good we had it to dust off the shelf Um, but the reality is it's things like energy materials financials and even in the big cap space REITs that tend to outperform when inflation expectations are rising so if that trend continues it's you know going to let this value trade live Mm -hmm. a little bit longer and keep some pressure on the growth trade which again is a a pressure on the S&P.
1: Yeah, and we've certainly seen growth bearing the bulk of the selling pressure. The Nasdaq 100 is down 27.5% year to date. But even beyond tech, there's been more pain for one area in particular, Lori, retail. The S&P 500 Retailing Index is down a full 30 percentage points so far in 2022. Of course, you've heard from Target cutting its outlet like twice, the focus really being on margins. When are we going to start to see that bleeding into more areas of this market? Because it started with
4: retail. Does it end there? It's a great question, Kaylee. And one of the things we point out in our piece is that if you look at the declines we've seen in the consumer discretionary sector, as well as the communication services sector, which has a lot of sort of consumer sensitive names in it as well, the declines we've already seen in those sectors are are very close to the average declines that we've seen in them in the past four recessions. Now, what's interesting if we are headed into a recession, areas like financials, industrials, materials should have been underperforming. That's part of the historical recession playbook that the cyclical areas tend to underperform heading into recessions, though they, of course, do quite well in the rebounds. Another one that we've been talking to people a little bit about is energy. Um, energy has you know, actually done quite well this year for obvious reasons, but heading into recessions, it does normally see decline, so I think it's fair to ask whether some of those winners that we've seen year to date, if this recession fear really does continue to take hold, are they going to continue to see that resilience or will there be a bit of a catch down? so maybe you don't want to continue to buy into areas
1: of the market that have been ripping, Lori. But you mentioned that there are some now pockets of this market in which you've seen enough de-risking that maybe it provides some kind of an entry point. What would those be?
4: So one place we've been putting people towards is small caps and we're technically neutral on small cap versus large cap, but we did say if you've been underweight now we think is the time to remove that underweight and get back to neutral. Um, And really when we look at the positioning data on the CFTC work, you've been below Mm -hmm. financial crisis lows. Valuations are cheap, not just in relative terms, but they're also getting pretty darn close to where they tend to bottom out um, in in recent years if you're not in a massive recession like the financial crisis. So we've got a clear valuation appeal. What we don't have, right, is a fundamental tailwind here. This is not really an area you typically want to be in when the Fed is hiking rates, when GDP growth is slowing, when ISM is falling, but we do know that that risk started to get priced in very early. And historically recessions are great buying opportunities right. for that part of the market. And for
3: those of you that want to know, Lori Calvicina, catch down is a phrase from CFA level five. That's where she got that from. We'll you know catch... where she
1: probably learned that, Tom? Uh, the great University of Virginia. She is a fellow Cavalier. Oh, my
3: word. <laughs> Wahoo! <for> <laughs> yeah, go Hoos. Okay, Lori Calvicina with us. Thank you. We'll do something at Darden here in the future. <laughs> RBC Capital Markets. I have been data dependent. I've been criticized for calling it a Fred Parler game. Francis Donald agrees with me because Francis Donald is writing brilliant economics for Manulife Investment, asking if her mother-in-law knows who Chairman Powell is. And you note, Francis, that your mother-in-law will drive. She's lovely, by the way, folks. She'll drive 30 kilometers out of her way to save 10 cents a gallon. How does Chairman Powell speak to your mother-in-law?
5: Well, he's not. He's tried. He said, let me speak directly to the American people. But the big challenge for the Federal Reserve is that inflation expectations, which they're so desperate to control, are really not going to come down, at least in the near term, on rate hikes. Most of the general public is going to see what they're paying at the pump and what they're paying at the checkout and simultaneously hear that rates are rising. This is going to be a very different communications or very difficult communications challenge for all Central uh, banks they don't have the luxury of right. being honest about what control they have on inflation. That's the underlying problem facing Chair Powell, Lagarde, and many other central yeah. bankers.
3: Chairman Bernanke on CNN this weekend, let's get out his textbook, Abel Bernanke, which is in my hallway at home. Francis, I look at Abel Bernanke, and back in Chapter 22-ish, it's about the effect of what the Fed does on finance. If they pop 75 beeps now, or July, or whenever, What does that do to North American banking?
5: Well, it's a struggle, and it's another strain on the system. We're looking, we could be inverted on the yield curve again by today or tomorrow. And unlike back in April, you're not going to hear as much pushback that this isn't a signal or a precursor to a recession ahead. Financial conditions are tightening. The economy is slowing. The consumer looks fine now, but all leading indicators suggest it's slower. Geopolitical risk is up. If you made a whole table of challenges for the economy, almost every single one would tell you that for the next six to 12 months, things are gonna be much more challenging. That's why this is such a difficult situation because despite all of these leading indicators, we have not seen the central banks blink. In fact, last week we saw most central banks that we're seeing actually appear even more hawkish. So the hope that bad news would be good news and, and to create a reversal in this market, it's just falling away in front of
2: us. Francis, consumer sentiment at its lowest on record and your mother-in-law driving 30 extra kilometers to get uh, a 10 cents less on a gas can drive around and see a lot of variation as things just climb higher and higher. Francis, at what point does it have to reach peak negativity before you get uh, some response from the Fed that can to really address this? Because right now they're between a rock and a hard place. If they actually come out as hawkish, perhaps that will create better sentiment underpinning markets and consumers. This is a great question. I mean, macro tends to be most valuable at inflection points in the
5: story, and we're not at an inflection point just yet. We haven't seen a blink from central bankers. We haven't materially seen employment start to rise, although some leading indicators suggest that gets better. Now, consumer sentiment, there's a range of indicators. A lot of people focused on University of Michigan last Friday. Consumer confidence, which weights a little bit more towards jobs, doesn't look as bad. But the challenge for consumers is we're going to get retail sales numbers that this week, and in nominal terms, they might look just fine, and you'll hear a lot of the consumer's good narrative, but in real terms, every single month, this is a consumer that loses purchasing power, and now initial jobless teams starting to move up, so they're losing purchasing power, and they're going to start worrying about their jobs. That transition from capital to labor, well, it's looking like it was very short-lived, and that's really the biggest challenge facing this consumer right now.
2: Francis, Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley came out and said people are not pricing in the consumer weakness that we are going to see, given exactly how much their budgets are being crimped. You have Lori Calvacina of RBC saying that if we break through the levels, the lows that we have seen year to date, we could get down to 3,400 pretty quickly on the S&P. Do you think that this is all accurate, that people have not taken into account how much the disposable income is getting eaten into?
5: Uh, two of my favorite strategists, two very good calls. That's the challenge here, is that the narrative has been for the last two and a half years, there were huge stimulus checks. The balance sheets look good. Debt service ratios are fantastic. But actually, real wages are declining. We're going to start seeing challenges in jobs. And that age-old idea, oh, the balance sheets are really solid. Well, that's where they are now. But where they're going to be in this next six to 12 months is more challenging. So that brings me to the question of when does the central bank really start to pivot? And it looks like what they're telling to us is they can't do it until inflation mollifies. What I'd like to see from Chair Powell this week is maybe some Yellen type comments. We want to focus a little bit more on core as opposed to headline and reminding the general public, whoever is listening, my mother in law will not be listening, uh, that they can control some segments of inflation, but not other ones. That would be sort of the beginning ceilings of what we could hope for in terms of a pivot ahead. But generally, I don't think this Wednesday we're going to get it. And that's why we're not yet at an inflection point in the macro. A story.
1: Are we going to get a hint that 75 is coming in July, Francis?
5: Oh, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, central banks are trying to open the door. The Bank of Canada did it last week. Previously, they'd said, oh, we're not interested in 75 basis points. And then when asked if they would raise by 50 basis points, they said, maybe more than that. I think these are central banks that want full optionality. What we might get, which might be helpful, is a little more symmetry in that optionality. Uh, More talk about a September reassessment could be very valuable. But again, I don't think we get that this week. We probably need much more indication that inflation, and inflation expectations begin to cool well they're definitely not cooling yet francis and as you say
1: the fed can't be responsible for reining in all of the factors contributing to inflation they can't do anything about the supply side how confident are you in their ability to get it down towards their target without a hard landing Not very confident if
5: this is their current strategy. So we're reevaluating our forecasts now. And there is a very significant weak patch in most economic models between Q1 and Q3 of 2023. Whether or not it tips the scales into mathematical recession depends what you're looking at. But the real story is this is a material growth slowdown. And guess what? Whether it's recession or not recession, that's not the name of the game here. That's an overly binary
0: type of focus. Francis, thanks so much.
6: top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
3: Stephen Whiting, let's go to your wheelhouse. Are profits threatened?
7: Yes, um, we are in a period of very high profits, and that makes them more vulnerable. Uh, we think that 2023 uh, will be a, a year of decline for EPS. Um, at this point, uh, again, we don't see the need for a plunge in every industry's profits. We don't see a need to unwind all of the, the gains that we've had over the last couple of years. Uh, but clearly, the impact of stimulus, fiscal stimulus on demand, bled through into profits in a positive way. That's how we had a 47% EPS year last year. Now, this means downward earnings estimate revisions. This is not going to be a year of 10% EPS gains followed by another next year. I do think share prices already understand right. this. In other words, the drop is already, uh, to some extent, uh, said that these uh, estimates are nonsense.
3: Steve, when, when we get tested like this, do companies that display free cash flow persistency do they go down with everything else or do they partition and separate from the
7: gloom? They do. And it really often comes down to dividend coverage, dividend delivery. Um, again, it's really boring stuff, but, but good stuff. If we take a look at uh, U.S. shares that have the most consistent long-run uh, dividend increases, um, they fall in half as much as the broad market and they yield nearly twice as much. So um, this is an area, again, to hide out in our own uh, discretionary portfolios. We have 11% of all discretionary portfolios, uh, U.S. or non-U.S., and for any asset class, benchmarked to that particular uh, type of style investing. Uh, again, and these were not the companies that could gain in 2020, they weren't the tech solutions, and they weren't the really beaten down cyclicals of 2021. So they didn't perform terribly well for the last couple of years. And We think they're a very good place uh, again now um, in a market that's far from perfect.
2: Stephen, what's the distance between now and later? And I, I look at Bank of America whoa, putting whoa, out whoa, 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 whoa. this that's, idea
3: of- That's just way too existential. What did you say?
2: This idea that you have a consumer that's strong, you have corporations that are strong, How far is the distance from now to a lesser now to one that people are forecasting in the prices of stocks?
7: So so look, um, some of the lagging indicators like inflation um, will take a long time to roll over, uh, but it doesn't mean we have to assume that inflation will rise forever. And just because consumer fundamentals are, are firm in many ways, you know, a lot is chipping against it. Uh, So we would expect, for example, this slowdown in goods consumption to result in lesser need for employment. Um, So employment growth uh, will be slowing down by later in the year. Um, You won't be able to say that a low unemployment rate um, is the reason why nothing's going to go wrong. I don't want to seem ultra bearish here, but this is, again, the reasons why um, I think from a forward-looking perspective in terms of monetary policy, you can't say, well, uh, we need to raise rates until inflation is low. By then, you will have created the forward looking conditions for a much, much deeper uh, decline in the economy than you're aiming for.
2: Alan Blinder, the former Fed vice chair, came out over the weekend in a story and said the chair of the Fed doesn't want to let the R words slip out of his mouth in a positive way, that we need a recession. But there are a lot of euphemisms, and he'll use them. Stephen, what are we going to hear from him on Wednesday?
7: It'll be very interesting because you can't really satisfy markets over short term inflation outcomes. You know, again, we, we've kind of joked around. It's like, well, you know, why don't you raise rates a uh, thousand basis points? And it's like, what will that do to next month's CPI reading? And there's very little they can do. I think that there has been less acknowledgement than we might have seen. And everybody's you know, is probably spending so much time criticizing mm-hmm. the Fed. It's too easy um, for all of us but supply shocks, periods in which we have instability in the economy. Think about, we were just talking earlier on the break, airfares have shot up by 32% over two months. That's non-annualized. Well, what were we seeing at goods prices last year? The same thing. The sources of demand in the economy are too unstable. We think monetary policy can take care of everything. Mm. It can't. Mm -hmm. These are periods where we don't stabilize consumer prices. Short in, in the short term,
3: Stephen Whiting with us, and we continue with Citigroup, uh, private uh, bank. I wanted to look at a better tape right now. Futures negative 96 up 10, 10 points, negative 86 on futures. Dow futures negative 547. Uh, yields do a little better, really, across the Bloomberg screen. Everything doing better, even the 210 spread from quick inversion two hours ago. We're now up 10 basis points on the 2-10 spread, Kaylee.
1: Well, on the subject of the two-year, yes, things have moderated, Tom, but you are still seeing that selling pressure in the short end of the curve. I was just taking a look at what has happened to the two-year Treasury yield in the month of June. And keep in mind, it's only June 13th. We're not even halfway there, and we're not yet to the Fed decision on Wednesday. That two-year Treasury yield is up 61 basis points. This is a market that has moved incredibly quickly, Stephen, now to price in 175 basis points of tightening by the Federal Reserve or hikes by the Federal Reserve by September. So I guess one word question 75? And I say that with a little shrug for our listeners on radio.
7: Well, look, um, if they're going to do 75, it's better to do it sooner than later when policy is still at a very low interest rate. But it also goes to the fact that they've kind of lost control um, of the dialogue over this. I mean, they need a monetary policy approach that they can sustain. Just take a look at the history of Fed tightening cycles. Um, over the last 45 years, when the Federal Reserve reaches its maximum policy rate, it's only kept it before cutting seven months on average.
0: Mm.
7: And if you really want it again to to deal with the longer term inflationary imbalances in the economy, you want a monetary policy that you can sustain. Now, again, you could game this out. Maybe I'm the wrong person uh, to guess this, uh, but um, if you just had created a shock and awe effect where everyone believes, okay, this is under wraps. And then a couple months later, the CPI is still rising. I don't know what you've accomplished. If you were tightening so much that you have a recession and then you have an easing cycle and you are doing QT, so now you've got to do QE again. This whole approach again of the Federal Reserve going from feast to famine and back again in a pro cyclical way. I mean, look, the mistake that was made was easing in a boom last year, you can make two mistakes of monetary policy, not just one. So I think, uh, again, trying to satisfy the market uh, and short-term inflation outcomes might be the wrong approach, at least as far as I'm concerned.
1: Okay, so what you're describing, Stephen, is essentially Jerome Powell with an impossible job that he just can't do this right. Either you're going to upset the market, potentially get inflation under control or you don't want to move too aggressively and surprise the market. Therefore, inflation is allowed to run hotter for longer. Is it that binary realistically?
7: Well, the one thing that we just can't um, dispute is the fact that monetary policy uh, doesn't complete control of the economy. Um, there are really positive developments beneath the surface on the supply side. You know, you could see the price of appliances was down. OK, why? Well, consumer goods production is now rising four and a half percent unit terms. Consumer goods consumption is falling. Imports are rising 12 percent. If you want to get through this, you know, we need to get through the next leg of it, which is going to be services, which is going to be Housing related issues. Um, Do you really want to create more instability? I think they're going to be in an environment where they're trying to avoid that and still communicate effectively. Maybe they can't do both.
3: Stephen Whiting, thank you so much. Great brief this morning with City Global Wealth Management here with some turmoil and a little bit of a pullback. Working with Edward Hyman over at Evercore ISI, Julian Emanuel joins us now, their chief equity and quantitative strategist. You have such a privilege to work with the Evercore ISI team and dovetail the microanalysis of Ed Hyman into your equity work. And the heart of it is inflation comes down but it only gets down in the vicinity of 4%. That's a change.
8: Right. Th- th- that is a change. That is an acknowledgement that basically what we saw last week says, well, there may be a peak somewhere in here because mathematically, if you get to nothing but base effects, you probably get a peak but it is likely to be a higher plateau for longer. And Ed took his inflation number for 2023 up to 4%. And that's the issue. That's where the fed has much less wiggle room than we would potentially like given the stress that we're seeing on asset Since prices. Since his
3: days at C.J. Lawrence, we've all watched the, the the white paper with the black marker. He got the black marker in one of my shirts once. <laughs> he had to buy me a new shirt. It was stupid
8: black mark. Tom, oh, I'm sorry, Tom, I got you. Is the black marker calling for a recession right now? I've been nailed with the yellow highlighter the, <laughs> okay. the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, no, no. Ed took his growth number down to 1.4% for 2022 a long time ago. He saw these headwinds. We still think the base case is no recession. But obviously, again, the same math that applies to the potential peaking of inflation also tells you that, you know, 1.4 percent to what could be a recessionary number, there's not a lot of distance there.
2: Julian, when does your bear case become your base case of 2,900 in the S&P?
8: Uh, Well, all all I can say is when we spoke about this last week, we certainly didn't envision uh, three days of carnage in the markets that that we've seen uh, since we uh, adopted that much more cautious view. And and frankly, you know, when you think about it from a trading perspective, what's been missing The entire last several months is sort of what I would call a cathartic flush out where you you get the VIX above 40, which is one of the things you need uh, for at least a trading bottom. Uh, This week is fraught with peril. I got like eight questions, but
3: Lisa's here. Just folks, I just want to, you know. In the carnage that we've got here and the more data checks, we need to point out that it is the Bramo base case bear case that we're talking
2: about. <laughs> yeah, well, this week this is fraught brought with peril, Julian. I mean, I couldn't peril say it better than uh, than my, you know, myself. Going forward then, how do you determine if we've hit catharsis? Just that 40 level on the VIX, or is there something more? Is there some sort of forced selling? A disorderly unwind that we have yet to see, despite all of the pain?
8: So, what we are likely to see, regardless Regardless of you know whether the markets decisively take out the May twentieth low, which looks like is a distinct possibility today, uh, certainly into Wednesday, is you're going to have an enormous amount of volume at mid month and the end of the month. Quadruple witching, the Russell index rebalance. We'd love to see that kind of volume. You know, twenty billion shares, perhaps twenty five billion shares on a day, along with the VIX surging towards those levels. Those are the kinds of recipes for a catharsis that we think uh, you need uh, really to entice buyers back. And the last several weeks has not been about selling overwhelming. Mm. It's been about a complete lack of buying.
1: Well, and yet the case remains, Julian, that we've already seen this immense selling pressure. And even before today, the S&P 500 has already teetered on the edge of bear market territory. You already have a 10-year yield that is at 324. And we've only just seen the start of quantitative tightening. It only really has just begun because, of course, these markets are anticipatory. They're forward-looking. How long is it going to be until this market is looking even further out and saying, well, the Fed's going to actually have to pump on the brakes here a little bit, and we start to see things reversing?
8: Well, th- that, is, that is a question that it, watching the bond market and one of our core theses around the view that 2022 was going to be volatile you know, before Russia invaded Ukraine was the fact that the correlation between stocks and bonds in a higher inflation environment was flipping from risk on, risk off to, uh, that's been 25 years long to uh, a positive correlation. We will be looking for uh, the 10-year yield the ascent in the 10-year yield to start to moderate a little bit. It wouldn't be a surprise if we get towards three and a half uh, in the near term to start to see some buyers come into bonds. That would stabilize stocks.
1: Okay, so maybe there's going to be eventually an entry point to buy the dip into bonds. Do you see any entry points at this time in the equity market, anywhere that valuations have come in enough that it actually is safe to dip your toe back in yet?
8: Uh, I think there are pockets of value, pockets of stocks that have been proven, you know, still growing earnings uh, in in this environment and that are returning cash. Uh, Remember, in in an environment where we are focused on return of capital, companies that can return capital successfully are names you want to own.
3: Are they going to return cost-cutting? Because if we get an Ed Heim and 4% stability and inflation, I'm a corporation, I have to adjust.
8: You, you do. And, and part of the, the you know, dynamic here that's causing this incremental market pricing closer to recession being a base case is the fact that all of these factors together is going to cause mm-hmm. pressure in the labor market, which paradoxically, again... The Fed would wish to see a little bit of that. But, you know, the difference between soft, soft softish and something else is very fine.
3: Julian Emanuel, thank you so much with Evercore ISI.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member, FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
6: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie?
3: As Brian Deese was talking about a gallon of gas, there's an entire other story in hydrocarbons. Darway Kung joins us now, head of commodities, DWS. uh, And we're just thrilled he could join us here on what I've ignored and I've been remiss on this, Darway, which is natural gas. No one talks about the price of a
9: gallon of natural gas, do they? It's much less known, but outside of U.S., I'm sure people are very concerned about high price of natural gas. Uh, U.S. natural gas has gone up multiple times of the price since beginning of the year. And uh, that strong demand coupled with a limited production growth and now more robust export demand has driven right. up U.S. price as well.
3: You, you are so good at the fundamentals of all of this and the underlying fundamentals of export import pressure of hydrocarbons in the United States. Describe right now who's going to win the battle. Do we export more? Do we keep it instead of exporting it? Do we start to import hydrocarbons again?
9: Uh, At this point, in the near term, uh, we are fairly maxed out on export capacity, and that won't change uh, until we anticipate 2024 and beyond. And there are scheduled projects to come online to convert our natural gas into liquid form that can be exported. Uh, our export capacity to Mexico via pipelines fairly maxed out. And we always have some import and export between Canada and U.S. to deliver gas from places that's less accessible in each country. Uh, But most of those pipelines are at maximum capacity. Uh, In the near term, we're not going to see a significant dynamic change. Um, Given how low U.S. price still is compared to the global price, we're less than about between a half to a third of global price, the pressure will be there for UX to export more once that pipeline I'm sorry, once that capacity to export liquid, natural Mm -hmm. gas increases in the near term.
2: From uh, natural gas to crude gas, refined goods, gasoline and uh, diesel, the fact that we're seeing such incredible lifts in gasoline prices, really basically regardless of what happens in the Brent uh, crude market. At what point do prices fall enough for it to actually matter for refined goods, given the uh, the lack of uh, refineries?
9: Well, that's a great question. I think in the near term, we still see strong draws from gasoline inventory. Up to this point, we should have been seeing seasonal build in gasoline inventory as refiners prepare for summer. And we've seen just opposite. So that natural demand draw uh, will continue. I I think that the solution to a high gasoline price really comes from demand reduction. We have to see a significant demand reduction to allow for the price to fall. Uh, We still see quite a bit of uh, pinned up driving demand and that's driving the gasoline price right now.
1: So how long or at what level will that demand destruction really start to kick in? How far away are we from that?
9: We are anticipating a year from now, we'll probably see less of that recovery demand from COVID-19, ex-China, and that should help with the price next summer. Uh, Unfortunately for this summer, we probably won't see that realized.
1: Well, you mentioned China, obviously COVID-0, still an overhang in that economy. You're still seeing large parts of it uh, dealing with restrictions to contain the virus Shanghai. uh, Just one example, if and when China opens back up, what does that do to this entire supply and demand dynamic globally?
9: That's a great question. The timing is very important. Uh, We do anticipate the additional stimulus program that's well announced ahead of time. Uh, both fiscal and monetary, to help with demand growth in China. Uh, However, it's very difficult to tell exactly when that's going to take place. Uh, Even recently, we've seen additional lockdown efforts again from Shanghai just because of the zero policy, uh, zero COVID-19 infection policy still in effect. Um, Without that being resolved, we don't see the demand coming back up. We do hope, though, uh, in the next 12 months, uh, as the demand go down, we anticipate demand go down ex China because of the, all the interest rate moves U.S. has made and other countries are like to follow. Uh, we are hoping that the demand uh, from China will help balance that down uh, yeah. uh, downward movement and keep the price stabilized uh, in the near term. Yeah. The,
2: Darway, Citigroup put out a report overnight where they were talking about how the amount of GDP destruction from where gas prices, where oil prices are right now, is really reminiscent of what we saw in the 1970s. Do you think that that oil shock analogy is the right one?
9: It's similar. Uh, We do see both, uh, in in both situations, we see sharp uh, rising oil prices, and we've seen artificial constraints on supply which will result in, as we have seen before, eventually we're going to see demand destruction. Whether we see a significant destruction that leads to a significant economic downturn or a more moderate, a soft-landing scenario, that will determine the outcome of oil price going forward.
3: Dari, thank you so much. Dari coming with us today with DWS here on commodities. We'll get him back here soon, particularly on the commodity dynamics of China.